All right. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm actually in Boston uh, today recording uh, this message, and it's from Genesis chapter 4. It's the first post-fall story. Um, It's what life looks like after Eden. And uh, we're going to pick up from Genesis chapter 4. We're going to take two weeks to cover it, so we'll get the first half. Uh, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this word Nod, it means land of wandering. So Genesis chapter 4. It's the first post-fall story. In other words, it's what life looks like after Eden. We read the text and the question, what is this story about? Like if you had to boil it down to one word, what would this story about? Uh, First of all, character, it's about Cain. Like it's not about Abel. You don't hear from him. It's Cain that God continues to deal with. It's Cain with his response. Response to what? Well, let's take a look. They're both at the altar. Each bring the fruit of their labor. Uh, fruit of their labor, like it's not just something they bought off the shelf, right? This is almost an extension of themselves. And so far, so good. God could clearly accept both kinds of sacrifices. Abel being a keeper of the flock brings an animal. Uh, Cain being a farmer brings his grain. So it's a surprise then that God does not accept Cain's offering. It says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was, maybe understandably, it says angry, and his face fell. Notice the text does not really go into the why of it. Other than this rather cryptic exchange between God and Cain, God says, if you do right, will you not be accepted? So there's something going on that we're not privy to. But I think the text deliberately wants us to focus not on why, like what's the difference, but the fact of the difference and Cain's response to it. Uh, and Cain's response to the fact that Abel, you know, he's accepted and I'm not. Like what is it, his response to it? 
is to focus, like he could have focused on God, he could have focused on himself. He chooses to focus on his brother. Why does he outshine me? I think it's very significant that this first story, right after the fall, it's about envy. It's about how to deal with someone who outshines me. It's about comparing myself against others and being miserable and envious and hostile and even violent. In other words, this is the shape of human brokenness. This is the first story we get after the fall, and the Bible wants us to confront this issue, this, this inner drive or, or this, this inner hunger and craving. I need to shine. I need to shine. Like Nobody should take away my limelight. And when they do, the upset, the comparison, the competitiveness, the envy, the desire to tear that person down, uh, the discouragement, all fueled from, I need to be at the center of the universe. I need to be special. And what is the trigger for this envy? It's inequality, right? Abel was accepted. Cain was not. It's, it's a brute fact. Again, the text doesn't go into why, but just the fact that it is so. And in that sense, it's very true to life. It's a fact of life. We are different. We're not equal. We're, we're, we're not all the same. The infinite and sacred worth of every human being is grounded in the fact that we've been created in the image of God. But as life unfolds, the fact is there's a great diversity. There's a great range on any of these criteria. So the question is not why this arises, but what will you do about it? What is your response to this? The fact that some of us are smarter, faster, taller, more talented, more artistic, more athletic, like some of us have nicer personalities, just more um, blessed with better social skills, pleasant. And the world segregates us based on these things. Like so much of, of what the world considers important to, to base unequal treatment of people are matters over which we had no control. The crucial issue then is, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? Like, what, what have you done? Like, you're not the same. Like, you're not so awesome. Or maybe you think you are. You know, more power to you if you think you are. But I think deep down inside, even the most, uh, you know, openly boasting, like, narcissistic guy, like, inside, there's a deep sense of inadequacy. So what are we going to do about this? You know, I, I think it isn't an exaggeration to say that our life story is often the drawn-out narrative of our response to this fact, to this question. What am I going to do with the fact that I find myself comparing with other people and not so favorably? For Cain, he decides to kill Abel. Like his, it's the response that says, I have to be preeminent no matter what. Uh, if you steal my limelight, then I need to get rid of you. And if I can't get rid of you, then I will get rid of you by, by distancing myself from you. I need to get away. So later in this chapter, uh, we find that, that uh, Cain becomes a restless wanderer in the land of Nod, restlessness. Uh, the restlessness as well as a wanderer. In other words, he's not connected. He's all alone. Like, that's Cain. What about you? Like, what has been your story of dealing with this issue? The fact that I want so much to be special. And the way to do that is vis-a-vis -vis other people. The way to do that is like, I need to deal with other people. And the way I need to deal with them is to be, to be er, er, E-R, to be taller, smarter, 
Ah, prettier, funnier, richer. But, but I'm not. But I'm not. I'm not adequate. And this whole struggle leads to being maladjusted with yourself, like I'm not that person, and maladjusted with other people, feeling intimidated or unnerved by others, or, contrary, feeling arrogant and contemptuous toward others, both maladjustments. Um, we find ourselves lonely in the end, unable to simply receive people and to give people ourselves, unable to relate to people, can't adjust to anyone. This restlessness, where does it come from? I think Genesis chapter 4 tells you it comes from humanity having cut off their relationship with God. Instead of relating to God and finding your place, God's absent and you look to yourself, you're not adequate, you look to other people and their sources of intimidation or envy or competition uh, or hostility. This plays out interpersonally. It plays out even in siblings uh, who we're supposed to love, but within families. It plays out in friend groups. It plays out um, in terms of different groups, oppressing other groups, uh, feeling humiliated by other groups, and all the misery that this unleashes. Genesis chapter 4 says, it starts right here. It starts with the fall. After having rejected God and asserting our own right, to define our own destiny, this is what we get. An inability to accept ourselves, an inability to adjust to others. But in verse 6, we read God coming to Cain, like his concern, like how are you doing? And he engages Cain in these, these precious words. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at your door. Sin described as a predator, crouching, ready to pounce. Sin is an aggressive force, ready to destroy Cain. It's a word of loving warning. Um, if you're even somewhat self-aware, I think you know this, that you can be torn apart by the dark power that you sense stirring within you. There is something dark and toxic at work inside of us, which really is aptly captured by this picture. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule it. Yeah, you can't be naive about this. The power of sin within you. That's why the Bible advises again and again, flee the temptations of sin. Get together with other people, form a reference group, and define your values as against sin. All right, so verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? God's saying, Cain, there's sin in your heart. In other words, God's concern is what's on the inside. Like, who are you really? What's going on inside of you, Cain? His question, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? How might you answer that question? Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Like what's bothering you? What makes you miserable? I think it's important we get the right answer to that question because that's what we're going to pursue as our, as our value. Like 
Why am I angry? Because I'm not this. So then I'm going to try to pursue that. It's important that we answer this. And I think Genesis chapter 4 is trying to tell us, wait, like, why are you getting rid of Abel isn't the right solution. Why are you angry? In Psalm 32, it says, blessed is the man who sins. The Lord does not count against him. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is that man. And the key to that is when I acknowledge my sins, when I did not hide, Confession. And that's what God is doing. Coming to Cain. Hey, can we, can we talk? Interestingly, we see God talking to Cain, but he won't engage. He won't talk to God. He will not confess and address the bitterness in his heart, the hostility that is growing, this little fire that's growing in his heart that, that won't be quenched except through the blood of Abel. Like that's what's going on. And he's not going to engage God about that. And I want to ask you, is there something that God is engaging you on? Maybe it'll start with, hey, why are you angry? Why are you angry? And if you would answer that question, then maybe another future might open up than the future of Cain. He kills Abel. I mean, we don't do that. Uh, but our response is something like that. Um, try to diminish somebody, maybe even in our mind, in the day of cyber warfare that all of us are so familiar with. We can attack somebody's reputation and tear them down. Cain, he decides that that whatever is admirable and able must be destroyed. Like, think about that. Abel must have done something right. Now, if Cain is really interested, he could have gone to Abel and say, Hey, brother, can you can you help me out here? You were accepted and I was not. But that's not his interest. He decides whatever Abel is doing right, he doesn't care. Whatever is admirable about Abel. He's going to destroy that. Whatever makes Abel better than him must be invalidated. In other words, he ends up destroying more than Abel. He's hostile to any value system under which Abel would be judged better. That's a terrible move. That is a terrible move to deny the very basis of value so that you don't have to feel bad. You know, it's sort of to wax eloquent about the meaningfulness of testing because you you got a C instead of yay. More sinister, it's to deny good and evil. It's to deny that there is such a thing. There's that theme again from Genesis chapter 3, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Cain is saying, God, you, you find Abel more acceptable than me? Well, then I reject you and I reject any standard by which you judge this. What are we left with then? Like if you deny that there's value, that there's legitimacy in value under which uh, Abel is judged better than you, and you want to deny that, then, then what do you have? You only have power because there's no third standard that's legitimate. There's only power. And Cain says, by my power, I'm going to destroy Abel. That's what Cain decides. It's pretty chilling. It's pretty chilling. Still, God comes to Cain as he had come to Adam, asking, where are you, Adam? Here he comes to Cain, and he says this, where is your brother? You know, two foundational questions in life. Where are you? Where are you with respect to your relationship with God? That was Genesis 3. Here, where is your brother? Where am I in my relationship to others? Like, how do you relate to people? Who are other people to you? The lens of envy and competition says other people are just objects and obstacles. Where are you? 
Where is your brother? Uh, Cain's brazen response. Am I my brother's keeper? And this, this sounds brazen, like straight up in English, but actually uh, in the original, it's a, it's a, a wordplay uh, because Abel is a keeper of the flock. And he says, am I the keeper's keeper? Cain refusing the implication of God's question entirely. What's the implication of God's question? Cain, you should know where your brother is. Like you should know where your brother is, that you should be responsible for him, that he matters to you, that you should care. What happens to him should matter to you. You are connected. That's real. It's not a moral ought. It's just real. You are connected. And God's question to Cain is the same to every one of us. Yeah, you are your brother's keeper. Cain's response is, I only care about myself. I'm forever hostile to all others who would compete with me. What does that make you? It makes you utterly alone. It makes you disconnected from others. It makes you exist in this universe, orphaned and without siblings. Am I my brother's keeper? What does he have to do with me? Like, what do you have to do with me? I refuse to own up to any duty toward you. I don't owe you a thing. Again, Genesis chapter 4 says this, that sentiment. That sentiment that, you know, sadly, we can all easily relate to, right? Like that sentiment. Like that's the picture of human fallenness as it plays out in our relationships. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Like this picture of Abel, you know, who's dead and gone, but his blood is in the ground. Like you remember what we, what we said about the ground in Genesis chapter 3, the ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. Well, here again, the ground is cursed because of violence, because of the blood. And, and it's crying out. Abel's blood is crying out. What, it's, it's, what is its cry? Its cry is, Cain is a murderer. Avenge my blood. To Cain, Abel is no more. He's, he's gone. He's not an issue anymore. God says, I hear the blood of your brother crying out. Why does God take sin so seriously? You know, this idea that of a holy God, uh, you know, whose focus is on human sinfulness. And this, this is throughout the Bible. And I think um, a, a common response to this could be something along the lines of, why so negative? You know, why is the Bible so negative? Why is God so holy? And why, do, why does he care so much about human sin? Um, here in this passage, we see another picture, another angle. It's God's love for Abel. God's love for Abel. Like, I hear his blood. You know, when you have children, when you have children, your perspective on human wickedness takes a different turn. Yeah, you know, human wickedness, violence, like that's bad. But when you have children and you love them so much and you see how vulnerable they are, wickedness becomes that much more wicked. Your love for people, in other words, causes you to be against anything that would harm them. So when you love the victims of the world's cruelty, your rage against their wickedness, it's not sourced in some judging condemnation, a rejection. The source of that rage, the source of God's rage, his wrath, as the Bible says, is sourced from love. And yet, God doesn't destroy Cain. Verse 14, Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Interesting. Cain, who is the killer, 
fears being killed. And I think it always works that way, but we won't get into that. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. God protects Cain. He says, I don't want this unending vendetta continuation of the blood. The sinner, the murderer, this, this wicked, brazen sinner is protected. It's a mark of grace. It's very similar to the note of grace on which Genesis chapter 3 ended as the Lord God, while banishing Adam and Eve from the garden, first clothes them with garments of skin. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 12 that refers to this incident in Genesis chapter 4. And, and here are the words. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The, the, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, the, the cross of Jesus on which Jesus bled and, and the earth soaked up his blood, just as the earth has soaked up Abel's blood. But Abel's blood cries out vengeance. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. What is the better word? It's the word of grace. It's a word of forgiveness. It's almost as if all of the world's uh, sins soaked up by the ground, uh, all the Cain-like murder, envy, neglect, and humiliation of neighbors, all concentrated on the cross. And while all of that blood cries out for justice and vengeance, the blood of Jesus says, and shouts maybe the picture of a, a better word or a louder word, forgiven, I have taken it all on myself. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. His blood that, that went into the same earth which absorbed Abel's blood, the blood of million more Abels at the hands of million more Cains, soaking the earth red with the blood of wickedness. And the cross of Jesus says, all sinners, you're forgiven. Acknowledge your sins, come to the cross. Come and be cleansed, come and be forgiven, come and be healed. And then a reversal happens at the foot of the cross. It's not just individuals coming before the cross and saying, God, I've sinned, I've murdered people in my heart, I've hated my friends, I'm constantly unhappy with this good life that you've given me. My face is downcast all the time because of envy, comparison, Insecurity, misery. But I recognize it's nobody's fault. It's my own sins. You come before the cross. And then something more happens than simply like you being forgiven. What happens is at the foot of the cross, you see other people. In other words, brotherhood is restored. Community is restored. Because at the cross, all other identities drop. All of our masks, all of the fig leaves that we wear, all of the ways in which we strive to be better than other people and gloat and, and console ourselves that, oh yeah, I'm better than this person. At least I'm not as bad as that person. Like all of that ridiculousness gets replaced with a new identity. And that new identity is what? I am a sinner, but a sinner forgiven. A sinner on whom God has mercy and through Jesus dying and bleeding for me, now I have another identity, sinner, 
now considered righteous, sinner beloved, sinner forgiven, child of God. You know, here you are like posturing and competing and comparing yourself with other people and all the drivenness that, what is it, what is it for? You know, to create some kind of identity for ourselves as, I don't know, as special, as competent, as uh, whatever it is, you know, that, that we strive for. And, and at the cross, all of, all of it drops. And what do we find? We find that the identity that we find at the cross is more satisfying because it's truer. It is true to the deepest part of who we are. It, it, it encompasses all of who we are. Now we don't have to run from truth. We can be candid and vulnerable. And then we look at our brother, we look at our sister, like, hey, I know your secret. You're just like me. You know, we're broken sinners. And the new identity that we find as sinners who are not dejected and condemned, but loved and adopted as child of God, and finally, we find our sisters, we find our brothers, the Cain inside of us that had destroyed Abel. Now Abel is back. We are restored to brotherhood, to sisterhood. And that's the meaning of the church. That's the meaning of Christian community. That, you know, we might all be different. You know, we look different. We, like we are different. But that's so shallow compared to the depths of who we are. And that depth, as ugly as it is, once we bring it to the cross, is accepted and cleansed. And we get our true selves, and we get our true brothers and sisters. We learn at the cross how to be a brother, how to be a sister. Instead of being intimidated, instead of resenting God's goodness to my brother, my sister, we say, well, we are one in Christ. Your strengths honor God. I'm going to celebrate and admire your strength. We get the pleasure of admiration back. We get the pleasure of uh, lifting up our brothers and sisters back because together we are one in the body of Christ and we honor God together. Restless, lonely wanderers, we are and are destined to become apart from Christ, but we become rooted, we become connected, we become beloved, and we get genuine community at the foot of the cross. So I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey. I don't know if you identify yourself as a Cain. Like, isn't the Bible so profound in showing us a mirror and showing us a spiritual portrait of who we are? If you find that this is who you are, what are you going to do? Will you continue to strive to overcome, to eliminate those who compete for your limelight so that you can stand alone, boasting, and therefore afraid of truth and afraid of others? Or will you come before the cross and say, wow, this is who I am. I am I'm this messed up. I'm this loveless. Please forgive me. So let's take a minute, as we always do, uh, to jot down some thoughts about how God spoke to you, and then I'll close in prayer. <laughs> 